Hello everyone, this is Neil Piper, Executive Director at the Presidential Precinct. Today, I'm excited to welcome you to a special season of our Global Founders Podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're sharing conversations with Mandela Washington Fellows at the Presidential Precinct. Alongside co-hosts Will Amaker and Benjamin Hotchner and faculty from across the precinct's five partner sites, Mandela Washington Fellows are leading conversations around the world's most pressing challenges including human rights and justice, governance and democratic development, access to education, and more. Then after the episode, you can learn more about the Mandela Washington Fellowship by visiting presidentialprecinct.org forward slash LMWF. Hello everyone, Ben here, and I would like to welcome you to today's episode of the Global Founders Podcast. I would like to welcome and introduce you to our two guests today, Dr. Manuel Lordeau uh, from the University of Virginia and Yasmin Abdulkader, Mandela Washington Fellow, 2019 at the Presidential Precinct, and a lawyer and environmentalist by training in Kenya. Hi everybody, I'm uh, Yasmin Abdulkader, a lawyer by profession from Kenya. We are currently working to strengthen environmental governance and climate change resilience through unlocking potential of communities and institutions so that they can manage their natural resources equitably and sustainably. As we know, sustainable development goal is one of the goal for 2013 agenda that emphasizes on achieving universal energy through renewable energy. Hi, I'm Manuel Lairdau of the Environmental Science Department at the University of Virginia. I am a biologist by training with some postdoctoral work in chemistry, and now I'm working at the interface of atmospheric science and biology as we try to understand the relationships among climate change, air pollution, and ecosystems. I'm particularly interested in what we t call managed systems, that is crop systems and pastoral systems where people are herding cattle or sheep or something else, as well as vegetable crops such as corn, tomatoes. I've been at the university now for 12 years, although 25 years as a faculty member. I was at the State University of New York Stony Brook before that. I'm very excited today here because one of my interests has been how do we use technology and take advantage of technology in environmentally sound ways that also can help people in developing nations improve their lot in a sustainable, resilient manner. Thank you for your introductions. Just to get started in thinking about climate change, traditionally it's been thought of as a problem for the future, as something where the consequences aren't yet felt today. Is that true? And what are the consequences we're living with right now in the US and Africa and worldwide? Looking at it from the African aspect, according to the Climate Change Vulnerability Index, it indicates that the effect of climate change are currently be being felt by people across Africa. And uh, evidence shows that uh, already there are a rise in temperature, and these temperatures has quite affected the African global, looking at it from the aspect to do with health, livelihood, food productivity, water, and overall security. 
and um, climate change has also brought a lot of extreme weather ch changes past patterns. We have seen a lot of drought. We have also seen a lot of floods in, in some areas and also a lot of infectious diseases as a result of climate change. Yeah, I think that I think that is a perfect summary of what we are seeing now and what the climate change models were predicting 15, 20 years ago. So I think and it's it's sad to say that the world is bearing out the accuracy and scientific correctness of the models of climate change that we have been using in the scientific community. And just to emphasize a couple of the points that Yasmin made, um, drought is one of the most severe consequences. And this there's this curious, almost a paradox at first sight notion that we have both drought and floods. And what happens, and this is again very well predicted in the climate models, what happens is rainfall events become often shorter in duration but more intense. And that is they saturate the soil, the soil can't take it, that water runs off and becomes flood water rather than being in the soil being taken up by the plants. So regions can suffer sometimes within the same year, both flood and drought. And this has huge consequences, as she said, for livelihood, especially for agricultural people, for human health and the spread of disease. Temperature, which we think of as the main climate changer, is actually aggravating these effects because higher temperatures increase the demands for water by both people, animals, and by plants. So it's really, it's really a, almost a worst of all possible worlds that we see coming together. And we see in Africa some of the most serious manifestations of climate change. Just to speak to the consequences of climate change, are they distributed equally across the globe or are there certain regions that are facing greater dilemmas as, as a result of the growing changes to our climate? I think uh, when we look at Africa, it has uh, different uh, terrain. There's some areas that uh, the climate, especially drought, has really affected. And uh, most of people that suffer most are women because uh, when there's shortage of water, they have to walk for long distance to actually search for water. And drought is a key factor that is um, holding back African continent in terms of productivity. I think there I think there are two aspects of this this notion of distribution of the consequences of climate change. One is what regions are most vulnerable. And again, as Yasmin said, it's the already dry areas that are most susceptible to drought. And so in that sense, the drier regions of the continent are the most susceptible. And these have consequences for the people who suffer the most, in this case often women, often children as well. Um, there's a second aspect of, of the distribution of consequences though, and that is in the industrialized West, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada, we often have the money and the economic wherewithal to in a sense buy our way out of the immediate pain. When we see a drought, a heat wave come across Western Europe as it did a few weeks ago or come across the Eastern United States as it is now, people spend a little bit more money, 
they run their air conditioners for a little bit longer. Their water bills might go up a little bit more, but everybody's fine. And the reason for that, of course, is that we are well above that margin. And our quality of life may decline slightly. We may complain about the heat, but we don't suffer the way people who are closer to the margin do. So there's a distribution of consequences based on geography, and there's one based on economy. Knowing that the consequences are real, is it still worth just talking about preventative measures, or do we need to start talking about restorative solutions as well? Uh, I feel uh, preventive and uh, restorative measures are important, especially when we look at the aspect to do with legislation. The African continent, I believe there are a few African countries that have policies, and I feel that it's important for us to come up with preventive and restorative uh, policies, especially the restorative policies that are going to build community and promote strategies that are going to increase African resilience to climate change and develop sustainable initiatives. Uh, I agree entirely. I think that it's a, f a false dichotomy to say that we should either focus on preventing climate change or we should be responding to it. I think we need to do both simultaneously. And I think that when we see countries that are on the developing part of their trajectories, what we see across much of Africa, parts of Asia, much of Latin America, these are countries who have the opportunity now to develop in ways that have fewer negative impacts on climate than what the West did. We should remember that what we, when the West developed economically, fossil fuels were so cheap they were almost free. And so we developed along trajectories that were very bad for climate. We didn't understand at that time. We do now. And so now we have to think about development trajectories that have smaller, fewer impacts on climate. At the same time, as Yasmin said, that we consider ways to respond effectively to the impacts of climate change. As a follow-up to that, you mentioned trajectories that have formerly been used for countries to develop. The Americans, the Chinese, the Indians have very much relied on fossil fuels to develop. Um, thinking about the future, what kind of trajectory hypothetically could function not on fossil fuels? Well, I think, I think we're seeing that trajectory develop and play out already. And we're seeing that now, for example, in the current price of solar power. In the United States and in Europe, the, the per dollar cost of power production from solar is now lower than the per dollar cost production of power from fossil fuel. And the challenge is to take advantage of what's called the crossover. It's now cheaper to power your house with solar than it is with coal. We need to figure out how to take advantage of that crossover in developing nations the way we've already figured out in the West. And my guess is that the sort of approaches Yasmin is taking in her work of mixing both solar and wind are likely to be the most effective in certain parts of the world. Yasmin, do you see this trajectory taking hold in Kenya? 
Totally, especially there are some rural areas that are not connected to the national grid. And uh, we believe for any development to take place, we need to have power in place. And uh, the examples professors given, it's quite um, practical, especially the aspect to do with either solar, wind, or hybrid, or combination of both. Now that we've established a trajectory, I guess, what are the successes and present challenges of developing renewable energy in the U.S. and Africa right now? Uh, looking at it from the African aspect in terms of the challenges, uh, most African countries lack a clear policy, regulatory, and institutional framework. And these are essentials for dissemination of renewable energy technology, as Professor gave examples. We also need to create uh, safe ground to see how we can actually encourage investors to come uh, invest in African continent. And uh, also there's lack of technical institution in terms of operating and maintenance of uh, technologies, especially uh, a wind farm. And uh, due to the large scale of uh, such uh, technologies, there's quite a lot of financial aspects that are needed. And uh, there's aspect to do with corruption in African countries as much as uh, the ins instances that uh, we encourage for foreign direct investment, most investors hold back knowing that uh, they have to fight corruption at African level. And also there's the lack of technical capacity that uh, renewable energy depends on institutional and human capacity as well as business and uh, market capabilities. Yeah, I, I think that, that I think that that covers um, some of the real challenges. I would add though that the challenges in terms of human capacity are also opportunities. What we have, if we look at say technical readiness for certain kinds of energy production, fossil fuel production, we have over a century of people trained in fossil fuel production technology. We have generations now trained in working with diesel technology, as an example. We now have that opportunity to create another generation of trained technical people to work with solar and to work with wind. And this is an educational opportunity in Africa, as well as, well as in the developed world. I would add that there is one there is one technical challenge with, with solar and wind that we do need to consider. And that's really one of the things from the technical end holding us back, and that is storage of power. What do we do when the wind is calm and it's night? And so battery technology, right now our ability to capture energy by wind or solar is phenomenal. No one 30 years ago could have guessed that we would be so far along as we are now. And Curiously, that progress is spurring technology development in batteries, but we're not there quite yet. We're close, and we will probably be there, if I say it's 10 years, we'll probably be there in five. And that is a challenge right now, bringing down the cost of batteries and increasing storage capacity of those batteries. We're making progress. We're not quite there yet, I think. Thinking about a vast array of renewable energy sources that could be a part of such a hypothetical and green trajectory for the future, how do you decide which sources are most suitable to which places? And second to that, is nuclear energy something that we should talk about? Okay. 
responding first to your question in terms of how we decide uh, which renewable energy source is the best, I think uh, African has varied uh, terrain and climate that favors uh, energy generation proje project such as wind, solar, and also geothermal. I think it's important to undertake a feasibility study first, first, and also we need to review the existing data and uh, resource assessment that is available, and also we need to compare cost of electricity in terms of the cost of building and operating power plant and availability of technical capacity by source. And uh, is Africa ready for nuclear? Uh, currently, it's only South Africa that has nuclear power as, as one of its energy mix. But a number of other African countries are currently pursuing nuclear power. Nuclear power can help uh, African countries to meet uh, its target under Paris Agreement to reduce carbon emission. It, its supply is reliable, prices are stable and predictable. But as African nation, are we ready to manage disposal of radioactive materials and waste? Most of uh, developed countries are also having challenges in, in terms of how to dispose the nuclear waste. I agree with with most of that. I would I'll, I'll when I get to nuclear, I might disagree a little bit. Um, I think when it comes to identifying the the best or one or two types of non fossil fuel energy sources, the 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 framework that Yasmin laid out is the right one. It depends on where you are in the globe, what the terrain is like how much sunshine you receive, your climate, in the case of geothermal, your geological conditions. And one really great thing that I can say now that we wouldn't have been able to say 25 or 30 years ago is that we know we can actually predict what combination of energy sources will work best for a particular region because we know a lot about the strengths and weaknesses. We know that in some parts of the world, solar doesn't make sense. There's just not too much cloud cover, not enough sunny days to drive it. We know some areas do not get consistent winds. They should not be that. So I think that we have, we have a way forward with this. The, my, my comment on nuclear is that I think that we, and we in the West face the same challenge, which is that to do nuclear power safely, which is essential because the consequences of not doing it safely are much more severe than the consequences of not doing a wind turbine plant safely. To do it, or the, to do nuclear power safely is still technically very challenging and exceedingly expensive. And the question is, is this the best deployment of resources um, in a region where technologies broadly are not as well developed. So on that sense, I think that we're actually further away from nuclear power across much of the developing world, not just Africa, than, than, than we are in the West. The second point that she brings up, though, is, is spot on. And that is that the challenge of waste disposal has never been met. And safe waste disposal, we have not we have not figured that out. We are still pushing that off into the future. And we don't have a good solution. And it seems to me just bad planning 
to build something which produces something highly toxic for millennia and you don't know what to do with it. So I think the waste problem is huge right now. And it's not worse, it's not more severe in Africa than anywhere else. It's a problem with nuclear that needs to be confronted. Coming back to the production of renewable energy, should we be scared at all that developed in Western countries will monopolize the production and therefore reap the benefits of it before any developing markets can access it? Most of the African countries, uh, whenever they encourage uh, foreign direct investment, there's a component to do with public-private partnership. So as much as we have foreign investors that are coming to invest, they normally agree in terms of the role and responsibility of each party. And it's also in a way, especially renewable energy, it, re it requires technical capacity. And uh, most uh, African countries, we might not have the capacity. They normally give us an opportunity also to learn in terms of operation and maintenance of those equipments. Right. I think in answer to your question, I would look at the technology in two, in two along two axes. One is the production. And that's certainly going to start out being concentrated in the technologically more advanced, more economically more developed parts of the world, in the United States, in Europe, in China, possibly in India too. But certainly the U.S. and China are the two big leaders right now. But once we start deploying these technologies broadly, there cr cr comes back to that notion of creating educational opportunities for maintenance. All energy systems, be they fossil fuels, solar, wind, require technological skill to, ma to maintain, and that is the development of local capacity. That's where education, that's where having experts in, in Ames, Iowa, or Charlottesville, Virginia, won't help the person in northeastern Kenya. We need that technical capacity on the ground there. That sort of education is a great opportunity. Just to push the point a bit, the fossil fuel sector in developing countries is often quite exploitative with foreign companies coming in, um, often paying bribes, often uh, reaping all the benefits and the rewards for themselves. Is that not something we should be concerned about at all? Well, I think what you're talking about here in terms of that business model with respect to fossil fuels is with the extraction. And the extraction of the fossil fuel from the ground, the value is not in the oil that's extracted. The value is added during the processing. That's where, and that occurs often else, far from the point of extraction. And so that's why the money leaves, because the value doesn't occur in that place. The solar and wind model is completely different, right? The value is added at the point of production. And especially with the sort of work that Yasmin is talking about doing at the household scale, the power is produced by the household for the household. The value added comes in the use of that power to support computers, to support stoves, everything that family needs to have a healthy, productive, and economically developed life. So in fact, I think the fossil fuel model, which is extraction, transport, refinement, and value added, is very different than what we see with solar and wind in the sort of work that Yasmin is doing. 
Anything to add, Yasmin? I totally agree with the proposal's idea. Um, During the Paris Climate Accords, the so-called developed countries pledged money and greater time to developing countries through a so-called green fund. How is it supposed to work, and has it worked? Speaking on uh, green fund, It's a global fund created uh, to support the effects of developing countries to respond to challenges of uh, climate change. The resources address issues to do with mitigation and adaptation needs of developing countries. It's also seen as an investment vehicle that that will only invest in companies that are deemed socially in their businesses uh, to be environmental friendly and also they promote uh, environment uh, aspect. Basically, the aim of the Green Fund uh, is to support developing countries to limit or reduce greenhouse emissions ad- and adapt to climate change impacts. Yeah, I think, I mean, especially as, as, as an American commenting on the Green Fund and the Paris Accord, the first thing that, that an American with a conscience has to say is, I'm sorry. And our withdrawing from that accord and our lack of contribution to the Green Fund are... I think enormous mistakes when thinking about this, not just globally, but in terms of our own national interest. I think we're making a big mistake in terms of our own future economic well-being and economic health and economic development. Um, that said, there is there is an opportunity for small deployment of green climate funds, and I think we need to think hard about what the best way to use those funds in the the fund was orig- the target for the fund was originally 100 billion dollars and i believe they're at about 10 or 15% of that value right now um, and so the challenge is how to deploy that and this is why we have lawyers and economists is to help figure that sort of thing out um, and to help do it well the science can contribute quite answers to questions of, well, what kind of energy system might work best in a particular area. But I think that the challenges that Yasmin laid out at the beginning of the conversation, not just technical, not just scientific, but social, cultural, political challenges are the ones that we have to take into very serious consideration when thinking about this. Our conversation today kind of reminded me about a story I was told when I was living in Tanzania during my high school years and Heights Kilimanjaro. I was told by my guide that the people that surround Kilimanjaro have a fable that seeing the snow over the many years receding on top of Kilimanjaro tell each other that the white tourists are going up and eating all the snow. Is humorous, but also quite true in the fact that developed countries bear a lot of the blame for the way our climate has changed thus far. So going off of that, what should the balance between developed and developing countries be as the future unfolds? All right, we're, Yasmin and I are staring at each other, each one willing the other to speak first. And <laughs> she won and I lost, so I'm going to go first. Um, I think that that's, there's a question, the word should is a tricky one. You said, what should be the balance? And 
should in terms of some notion of fairness that is the person who broke it the worst is responsible for paying most of the cost of fixing? Yes, I think that's true. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that the, per the person or the nation with the capability of paying the most should. But I, I think that just phrasing it like this and who should bear the responsibility, I think that that's missing a really important part of the question, which is that changing our technology, the way we, the way we produce energy, the way we produce food, the way we handle water, in ways that will help rather than hurt the planet, these are economic opportunities. There are more jobs in solar in the United States now than there are in coal. We should be giving subsidies to our solar industry more than we do to our coal industry. We should be helping our coal miners who have very high rates of unemployment adapt to become skilled at solar cell production, skilled at battery production. This is, these are opportunities for us. And in fact, the West, that is who, who is responsible for climate change, has an, a head start in adapting its workforce for a new world of energy production and food production and water management. So in the terms of fairness, yeah, it should be the, the developed West. And in terms of who's going to be able to do it the best, the fastest, it's the developed West. Who can benefit a lot from it? It would be the developed West. It's in our interest as a nation to push forward with this. Um, why we don't, well, there are a lot of reasons why we don't. But I think in this case, thinking about it just in, in these kind of schoolyard terms of fairness is missing the opportunity side. Yasmin, any thoughts? I totally agree with the uh, pro professor and uh, explanation that he gives. He gave in terms of the fairness uh, between the developed and uh, developing countries. I, for me, I think it's important to increase access to renewable energy and energy efficiency to fight climate change. Thank you so much to you both for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Yasmin Abdulkader's work in Kenya. Feel free to check out the link below. Have a wonderful day, everyone.